0: Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations.
1: And thanks for tuning in to another episode. Today, we are going back to the oceans with broadcaster, author, ambassador for the Marine Conservation Society, the Shark Trust, and the world's only heavy metal marine biologist. It's Tom, the blowfish herd. Hi, Tom.
2: Woo. Good, good. Hello. Hello, Charlie. How are you? Well.
1: Hello, I'm good, thank you. Yes, sat on my living room floor with a coffee chatting to you, so it's... it's a There's good...
2: no better place to be.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So, without further ado, could you introduce what we're going to be chatting about today?
2: Uh, today, we're going to take a, a cheeky foray into the wonderful world of sharks with a specific, indeed, sightseeing detour of UK sharks. Uh, things that you'll find around our very own coasts.
1: Absolutely, well I'm very excited as someone who's recently moved to the coast and has recently discovered a love for the sea that I never knew I had, um, I'm very excited to talk about this, but can we re- uh, rewind a little bit, as I do with all of my guests, because I'm really interested to sort of hear your, your journey into this and how you became the world's only heavy metal marine biologist. <laughs>
2: Uh, it's a, a story that I've, I've told multiple times and I do wish it was in some way slightly more, uh, uh, in, you know, inspiring. I, I wish I was bitten by a radioactive starfish or I, you know, I'd landed from the planet Aquarius in, in the backyard of, of West Yorkshire. But no, I, um, I'm obsessed with uh, the sea and realistically, I always, I always have been. And uh, I, I made the decision to my uh, my old man's a, a vet, so I spent most of my youth, damn near all of my youth, really, following him around onto farms. And we've always had animals, and of course have a huge affinity with animals. Have seemingly always worked with animals. I seemed fairly kind of tacked on that I was gonna, you know, go and become a vet. It seemed it seemed the way forward. I kind of you know had it planned out and um however throughout all this sort of time i, I was really interested in, in the seas and that had, had occurred at a i think the the seminal age of 7 when a next door neighbor thought it would be funny to trick me into watching jaws um so at 7 years old like i think a lot of people of that generation and still now are terrified of of sharks and uh that was it. It was just like, woof, you know, I'd so so afraid of them. But rather than it was it's one of those scenarios where it's like if you get an ulcer on the inside of your mouth, you it hurts, but you can't kind of stop touching it. And so I was terrified of sharks, but I'm also terrified of wasps. Whereas I run away from wasps. I, I kind of started to read up more and more about sharks in an idea, well, if I learn more about them, then I can I can kind of not beat my fear because I was too young. I was, you know, uh, eight, nine, ten. And I'm reading about sharks, uh, just sort of drawn to them through the fear. And by the time I was 12, I knew more about sharks then than a lot of people will ever learn, you know, in their whole lives. And uh, that was uh, combined rather with a trip in a now not to be named famous aquarium in Orlando and went through their shark tank there. And I vividly remember coming out of, of the other side of, of the tunnel and just turning to my mum and my dad and saying, I want to be a Marine biologist. And so, at, you know, at 12 going 13, I said, right, I'm going to be a Marine biologist. And I am. And I did. And I uh, was, and will be forever, forever more until the seas boil and the ice caps melt a little bit further. Um, as far as the heavy metal is is concerned, well, I mean, heavy metal is is just the world's greatest musical art form. So, I mean, listening to heavy metal is just normal. That's standard. If you listen to anything else, you know what's wrong with you, Jesus. I mean, come on. Uh, but the combination of the world's only heavy metal marine biologist, uh, the Blowfish, occurred during my time at Bangi University when I was doing my uh, marine biology degree i had planned that I was going to get my degree and then work towards a master's, work towards a doctorate and and work very much in the the nuts and bolts of academia and research to that extent. But in 2005, I took part uh, in an expedition to the Adriatic, which is in the Mediterranean. And for two weeks, for two solid weeks, the expedition did nothing but chum. And this is where you take basically the chopped up remains of fish and their fish guts and all that kind of stuff. You mash them all together. You put them into a netted bag and it's like a big shark tea bag. You dip it in the water and it, it leaves a trail of scent that attracts sharks. Anyway, we did that solidly for two weeks. So the boat was stationed in one place and crews came to and from the boat and switched on and switched off. So we never stopped chumming. And in two weeks one shark appeared at the boat, and it was like a tiny, small, little blue shark. And so I came back from that in 2005, and I thought, you know, there really is no point me going on to do the Masters, the Doctorate, and all that kind of stuff, because the people in that realm, the people that read those scientific papers and the, the effects that those... Those papers have uh, so very limited to a thin kind of crust of people within academia, within people within that interest. And yet these aren't the people that can really make the wide scale change. The people that make the wide scale change are are the public. They're the people that don't know, that then suddenly do know. And suddenly go, hang on, this isn't, you know, we're not cool with this. We need to do something uh, about it. So I made the decision then. I was going to combine my love of marine biology with my uh, naturally loud voice and uh, developed this sort of broadcasting persona of the blowfish because it's way more interesting to be called the blowfish than it is to be called Tom. And, um, And certainly back then, you know, this is the days before, YouTube got going. This is the days before, you know, all this you know, 30 second hit and miss social media happened. Uh, you know, it was a good it was a good uh, kind of hook. It was a good gimmick to get connected, get out there. And, you know, the, the blowfish, the world's only heavy metal marine biologist was born. And and the rest, as they say, is, is history. And here we are. Here we are today uh, enjoying a cup of tea and a chat.
1: Here we are. Well, I actually think that's a really inspiring story. I think you saw what you wanted and you you sort of went for it. You grabbed it by the the handles and just went for it and I, I love that.
2: Well, I am from Yorkshire, so I'm very stubborn. So once <laughs> once I've decided I'm going to do something, I tend to be pretty stubborn about it. So <laughs> to my of- to my detriment most of the time.
1: Which part of Yorkshire? I'm interested.
2: Halifax, West Yorkshire, the greatest oh, I, part of Yorkshire.
1: I grew up near Pontefract,
2: so. Oh, tough. I right? know. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry.
2: No, yeah, no Pontefract. I mean, uh, of course, Sir uh, Jeffrey Boycott. He uh, Pontefract lad, so you know, it's not not all bad, not all bad. But yeah, good old uh, good old Yorkshire. Nothing quite like being, you know, uh, obsessed with the sea and and almost being as geographically far away from it as you can get. So. <laughs>
1: It's a winning combination. Oh of (laughs) course. Well, sharks. Now, I'll tell you my sort of my thoughts of sharks and I imagine that it's it's similar to how a lot of the general public feel about sharks. I am I love sort of what people call wild swimming, but it's not wild swimming, it's just swimming at the beach and, you know, swimming in lakes and things. But I am absolutely terrified of these large bodies of open water, not because I'm scared of the water, but because I'm a bit of a control freak and I'm scared of what I can't see underneath the water. And I think it probably stems from being chased around the pool by my dad as a young child singing the Jaws theme. And nice. <laughs> Nice. And I'm still, I still won't, I struggle to go into a swimming pool at the gym if I'm on my own, because I'm like, oh, God, what if a shark's there? And yeah, that is yeah. completely irrational. I yeah, so it's it's
2: uh, something that I, I had as well for a very long time. You know, it's uh, the fear of the unknown is one of the most base human fears. Yes. Uh, it's nothing to be worried about.
1: Absolutely. But since moving to Wales, my fear has switched just, uh, slightly from uh, sharks to the jellyfish that we have around here. But um, sharks in the UK, we obviously have them, but I'm only just kind of learning what we do have in the UK. So shall we have a whistle stop tour of what's in the UK waters?
2: We certainly shall. So we have um, 21 resident species. And all in all, within UK waters, so, you know, the boundaries, uh, I think the current total is just ticked over 40 for different shark species. So, um, the the, you know, the UK, the ocean topography of, of the UK is that we are on this continental shelf. So, you know, you come out from the coast and then it does drop down, but it doesn't drop down particularly far or particularly deep. And so we have this incredible... Shallow sea environment, which is uh, very productive, and uh, of course has a wide range of habitats, which is why the UK waters and and the waters off Ireland as well are so you know so incredible and uh, and have so much life to them. Past that, it drops down a bit further, and you get into sort of the deep water as you go off the edge of the continental shelf. So, because we have this um, mix of uh, ocean topography. As well as uh, our coastal species, we also have about 10 to 12, depending on who you ask, uh, deep water species uh, that are regularly found in the UK. So there's no point going going through them all. I think most people will come across the remnants of the breeding efforts of some of our smaller, more coastal species. So we have a lot of uh, skates and rays in the UK, Mm -hmm. and you will find things, the old fashioned mermaids purse. And these are from sharks. So when you find a mermaid's purse, it's from a shark. Uh, Usually if you find quite a large square one, that will be from a skate. So this is a a ray, but essentially a a ray that's a bit more triangular, uh, if you will. And... uh, Yes, and they, they lay eggs in, in our shallow waters. And certainly off the coast of Wales, there are many sites where you get a lot of, of mermaids' purses kicking up. If you find a mermaids' purse that's uh, smaller and is more sort of uh, a small rectangle, almost kind of like thumb-shaped, if you will, that's likely come from a cat shark, which quite often will be called dogfish. People usually refer to them as, as dogfish. So... Again, they uh, these species are quite um, sessile, quite benthic. They tend not to move around a lot. They tend to just sit and chill in our local coastal reefs and, uh, you know, have a munch every now and then. Passing crab, bit of a munch, you know, slightly gammy looking fish, bit of a munch. It's a very chilled out life for these sharks. But as you do progress past the, the sort of coastal waters and just that area below the, uh, the low tide mark, we've got some proper sharks. We've got some really, really proper, proper sharks. So uh, for one, the largest shark in British waters and also the second largest shark in the sea is the basking shark. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a, a regular seasonal visitor. Uh, they turn up. Just in time for the spring plankton bloom. So they will be, they'll be getting ready about now-ish, really. Uh, We're sort of, what, we're making our way through February, aren't we? So come March, April, uh, and certainly May could be considered high season for uh, basking sharks. They'll be found uh, around, usually it's Cornwall, and you'll find them off the highlands in Scotland uh not actually walking the highlands you don't you know see them next to a stag or a deer or anything um and the isle of man is a great place as well for basking sharks so they need to be in areas where there are regular blooms of plankton because they live on on such an incredibly tight budget so you you're basking shark 10 meters in length so the same length as a london bus and even though sharks have possibly the greatest hydrodynamics of any animal in the sea, they still have to propel their bodies through the water. So a good couple of tons, they're not slim gyms, you know, they've got to push their way through the water and they have the added pressure of the fact that because they are filter feeders, they open that huge, enormous mouth, which acts like drag. Anyone that tries to run along with an open umbrella behind them will know you get dragged, you get pulled back. But they have to push their face through this water, through the plankton, the soup of the sea, to strain out all the particular tasties. And that takes effort. And plankton isn't particularly nutritious. You know, it is the sawdust uh, in levels of nutrition. Uh, even if it is the soup of the sea, it won't put a lot on the waistline. So we'll find the basking sharks in areas where the plankton is constantly being refreshed by cold water inputs from uh, maybe from turbulent waters perhaps cold water upwellings and uh will also be brought together through currents and and tidal fronts so that it's it's concentrated so they can get a really good feed in one place so there you go second largest shark in the ocean and it's a it's a native uh uk resident but we've got some you know some Predatory sharks, as well, uh, the port beagle shark and the uh, the mako shark. Uh, the poor beagle shark is and the mako, sorry, they're both members of the mackerel sharks, so they're related to the great white. And uh, I mean, a poor beagle looks like the coupe version of a a great white, it's it's you know much shorter, that and they work on exactly the same uh biology. Basically, the uh, the poor beagle is the coupe great white. The Mako is the sports car, great white. And then obviously the great white is your standard family sedan uh, mm-hmm. or state as, uh, as things may go. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that we have have them in our waters is incredible. You cannot get top predators where you do not have a, a, an established ecosystem that has, you know, depth in, in its biodiversity sharks are uh, you get a lot of sharks which uh, are quite sort of widespread in their dietary choices but certainly predatory sharks tend to be very very prey specific because as you narrow up that food pyramid as it were you need to become more and more dedicated to catching that one prey item and and so because of that that one prey item itself needs to be well supported. It's a big old house of cards. And mm-hmm. whenever you see big predators, it's a real tick in the box to say that we've got a hellish big, uh, you know, house of cards. So poor Beagle, fantastic Mako shark, fastest uh, fish in the sea. Don't believe any of that chat that you read about, um, oh, you know, a sail fin can swim at 70 miles an hour and a marlin will do 80. It's total nonsense. It's been repeated too many times and it's even been repeated on things like um, the BBC and on Blue Planet. It's a total lie. Uh, These are recordings that were taken from a sports fishing boat uh, off the coast of, I think, Peru in the 1970s. And they were visual observations. They weren't even measured. The guy went, well, I reckon that fish is doing 70 miles an hour. And yet it still gets repeated now. Science and physics won't let anything in the water go faster than about 35 miles an hour before it physically starts stripping the paint off. So mako sharks, reliably clocked at 31 miles an hour, that's the fastest fish in the sea. Uh, As an aside, a sailfin or a marlin will probably do about, at best, 15 to 18 miles an hour. You might think, oh, that's not that impressive. But when you think that the fastest a human can go is at maybe four or five It is pretty fast. Um, From there, we go down to uh, some more uh, interesting uh, sharks. So we have had uh, hammerheads briefly in uh, UK waters. We might get them again. I believe a frilled shark was once found in UK waters. Uh, We also have some, uh, some incredibly rare and endangered sharks in our seas. So the common skate, which has the world's most unnecessary name now. Guess what? It used to be super, super, super common. And now it is classified in the same listing as a bengal tiger so there are very few areas now around the uk where you find these guys uh they have been hunted uh to damn near extinction same for the angel shark used to be very very common around the uk and they are now locally extinct in the north sea um fingers crossed they will make their way back in there but uh you know it's a real it's a real shocker we have these incredible habitats, which support some fantastic, you know, top ocean predators. And yet they are largely forsaken because, uh, for, you know, since the 70s, not only has Jaws made us hate sharks, but package holidays have made us consider that. The best kind of water is clear and blue and you know these beaches and that's 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 nonsense that's tripe you know you need to have thick green seas super the sea get that plankton that plankton just fuels everything else but uh, if it makes you feel any better about sharks and jellyfish in the uk um the blue shark which is a regular seasonal visitor to the uk another proper shark if you will they are big fans of eating jellyfish. So the more blue sharks we have, the less jellyfish we have. So that's a bit of a bonus. So that's about as whistle-stop as you can get um, for, you know, a few of the highlights of our UK shark population.
1: Well, that's brilliant. And yay for blue sharks if they're going to, you know, help me with my uh, my jellyfish fear. <laughs> but we talk about predators and we talk about things like jaws. And I think it's fair to say that sharks are extremely misrepresented in the media. You know, recently we've had this headline about, you know, great white shark spotted off the coast of, I think it was West Sussex or somewhere. And it's it's set to terrorise tourists, tourists terrified and, you know, all this. So can we lay these claims to rest? (laughs) 100
2: percent. But they don't sell papers to say large animal goes about its business doesn't do anything doesn't sell a paper um i uh i've done uh interviews with a, a couple of newspapers uh, and you know various media outlets through my time and you you know you really do have to fight to get them to to say you know say the truth it, it's it's outrageous and it's it's also very in- entrenched um you know i uh yeah, I'll never quite, I, won't, I, I get it for me because of course, like I say, I saw Jaws and so I was scared and so I had something to be scared of and I saw it at seven and that's, you know, th- that's that like kind of formative age between like four and, and, and ten where you start to learn about the dangers of your local environment uh, as, you know, as a mammal, not just yeah. as a human, but as a mammal. It's all going on very very much in the back of the head. I, I remember long years ago when I used to work for the Blue Planet Aquarium in Elsmere Port. Um, one thing that was really, really very, um, very clear and happened many times. Small children, very small children uh, would run up to uh, exhibits. You know, they'd run up to the shark tank. They'd run up to, uh, you know, tanks with with frogs or snakes or spiders in because they wanted to see them. And they'd run up and they were excited and they wanted to see what was going on. And more often than not, it was the reaction of their parents that, then affected them so I had I remember I used to do some time um we just used to time like photo ops holding a snake and kids were desperate to see it they'd run up to see it and I had a kid running towards me get halfway towards me and the mum went oh snake and the kid stopped turned and looked at its mum and ran back she didn't say come back you know come back Susie it's a snake but that's what we do and and so that kind of inherent fear and unnecessary fear has been spread throughout um Throughout society as a whole, I think. Um, But the shark, the shark in uh, speech marks that was seen (laughs) off uh, wherever it was, somewhere down in the southeast, uh, is a seal. Uh, It's 100% a seal. And, um, yeah, it it just is. I mean... uh, I've, you know, I've reeled out the statistics uh, a thousand times and, you know, they lose any kind of impact after a certain period. But, you know, more people die each year from um, vending machines falling on them than from shark incidents because they are incidents. They're not attacks. We have to be very, very clear about this. It's an incident. You know, if you're crossing the road and a car hits you, it's not a car attack. It's a car accident. It's the same thing, you know. If you're, uh, uh, you know, a large shark, you're three, four, five meter long shark, you have an incredibly, you know, well-toned physique and you've got power and you're designed to be able to, or you've evolved, sorry, to, to take out fast-moving armoured seals, then one chomp into the, the leg of a, a pathetic human and severing its femoral artery It's that's not an attack. I mean, the the honest truth is that if sharks really did see humans as a viable prey source, and every time we went in the water, people would be they wouldn't just be bitten, they'd be killed. That's that's it. That's just fact. You know, Um, think about how many uh, they seem to be more and more common these days. But we we think about how many tragic stories we see in the the paper about when uh, a young child has been attacked by the family dog. Yeah. And you think that's, you know, a dog is nowhere near the size of, of uh, a human. And yet, pick a dog up, give it a pat. It's all muscle. It's corded. It's an animal. It's ready to rock and roll. So, you you know, we're really kind of kidding ourselves that when a shark incident happens, that shark has been beaten off by the hum. No, no, it's come in, it's made a mistake, and it's gone, that doesn't taste right. And it's gone on its way. Or it's come in, made a mistake the human has reacted in the way it would and attacked the face and it's gone well hang on this no it, i'm not i'm not going to waste my time on this and gone because mm-hmm. honestly if if sharks really did eat humans there would be hundreds hundreds of attacks every day every day and uh, we we wouldn't go in the water plus there'd also be a type of shark that had evolved to like sit in the coastal areas waiting for the germans to put their towels down on all the decent <laughs> seats just waiting for the Germans just to come along. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it will be something we can ever dispel simply because it's there, it's entrenched. And the, you know, the vast majority of of humans worldwide don't get a chance to get into the ocean. They don't get a chance to see a shark. I remember when I went diving, Oh, how old was I? Probably 15 and went diving with sharks when I was about 15. And, um, the first thing, and obviously I've already said, you know, I was scared for, um, at a young age about great whites and sharks in general. Um, but then decided to be a marine biologist. Blah, blah, blah. First time I went in the water with them, I was shocked by the fact there wasn't any music. And I know that sounds like a really bizarre thing to say, but there was no theme, there was no music, there was no background score. It's yeah. just silent. And that's what we need. People need to meet these animals up close. And again, it, it doesn't matter what I what I tell people and say. You know, I've, I've jumped in the water with uh, tiger sharks, um, you know, reef sharks, lemon sharks, um, God, uh, blue sharks, you know, the works. And um, I've not been in yet with a great white, which is annoying me. But, you know, they... <sighs> We're just not on the menu. We're so not on the menu. Uh, How we get that across, I don't know if we we do. Although I would say that the tide, terrible pun there, is turning. People are, I think, reaching a point where they're happy to say, well, I'm still scared of sharks, but I know we need them. And that in itself, that's half the battle won. I mean, I would rather someone be terrified of sharks and never want to go in the ocean ever again but protect them than someone who goes in the ocean 10, 15 times a day and then spends their weekends going like sports fishing. So Mm -hmm. we're getting there slowly, but surely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think that's kind of it. It's sort of understanding. I mean, just before we started recording, I was talking about the uh, wasp episode I recorded and I'm still, I still, you know, if a wasp comes at me this summer, I'm still going to be screaming in the other direction, but I understand and I sort of respect that those little angry yellow and black things are only a small portion of you know like all wasp species there's something like 140,000 species that are known and that's just you know so these tiny yellow things are just the sort of tip of the iceberg but it's the understanding and the respect for for them and for their importance so how do you think we can start i know there's a lot of work going into it but how can we sort of the best way to teach people about the importance of them and the necessity and the job that they do for their ecosystem and the planet.
2: Well, uh, the, uh, as terrible as, as it is for a cliche, you know, the, the, the children are the future. Yeah. <laughs> the the kids really are the future because, um, they are, that they have no fear, uh, when they're young, they have no fear, um, they will you know come and see something they will get involved with something they will they will ask all the silly questions about something um yeah you get those ones that will be terrified but that they you know they are they're willing to learn because they can't help it at that age the brain's there so you know that's we need to keep engaging with with the, the younger generation it doesn't matter if they go on to become accountants or, you know, firemen or women, you know, they can go on and do whatever they want. Um, you know, I I do marine biology and I but I'm still aware of other factors in the world that don't immediately affect me, but I know I need to, you know, doff my cap to them. So I think continuing with, I mean, we do a lot of stuff with Marine Conservation Society and, uh, you know, just trying to get kids involved in the sea, because as soon as you start talking about the sea in any way, shape or form, you just, you just have to include everything. It's not, it's not like an active choice. It's just that the sea is this one massive entity. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to talk about one thing, eventually you have to talk about everything else because... It's just too intrinsically linked. And since this planet is an ocean planet um, and we live on the tiny scrap of land that is not wet, uh, although looking at the weather at the moment, I think that's about to be adjusted. Uh, yeah, it's it, it just getting kids involve, involved with the sea, involved with the oceans. Uh, again, marine conservation, we do a lot of stuff with... Um, uh, just the beach cleans really good you know it's a good thing so obviously swimming and getting people out in the sea is a little bit harder but getting people on the beach uh in itself is it, you know quite straightforward you can do that and that can be a great way in and i think uh, as well it's it's key not to overload people with um overload people with with the struggle overload people with you know the the ish picture yeah. you know give them give them you know the pace notes for sure but there's no point dumping an impossible task on on anyone you know and i i think that a lot of i think a lot of conservation uh, efforts sometimes fall flat by being just a little bit too um bleak's not the right word just we need to we need to always point out not just how we're getting it wrong but how we can get it right yeah. And I think that is the big difference. It isn't just saying this is going wrong and this is your fault. It's this is going wrong. This is your fault. But this is how together we can fix it. Yeah. And and that is the, the key part of the story, because if you just, you know, if you stop somebody in the street and said, oh, by the way, you know, your, your hat makes you look like an idiot, they would be massively offended. But if you stop someone in the street and said, oh, by the way, your hat's the wrong way around, you've got the ticket on the back, let me just turn it around, there you go, you look smashing, they'd be like, oh, cheers, mate, you've still solved the same problem, Mm -hmm. but you've done it in, uh, you know, a different way, and I think that that's where we need to go, we need to give people solutions, manageable solutions, solutions that they can do at home, um, and, and, yeah, and not try and, you know, crush people under the, the, the bigger picture until they're ready until they say okay I've done x what's y I've done y what's said okay and then and build them up from there I'd rather have a million people doing one small thing than one person doing you know one massive thing because Mm -hmm. it's the smallest stones to start the avalanche and and that's it we need to give people that idea that the little bit they do combined with everyone else will make a change
1: absolutely and I think that's kind of You've hit the nail on the head about why I sort of wanted to create this podcast. It's because I obviously spoken to so many people in in my life, friends and family who have this opinion of, what can I do? Nothing I do is going to make a difference. And I think it's there's a I've said it before that there's a there's a fear that we're going to have to make these huge life changes and our lives are going to have to drastically alter. But that's not the case. It's the case is we need to make these small changes together. As you've said, a million people making these tiny changes is going to be more effective than one person going out there and sort of single-handedly trying to take on climate change or the plastic problem or you know, so I think I think this is it. And definitely when it comes to kids, I mean I've got I've got two kids, they're five and six, and they're absolutely mad about nature. And I know that's probably because I sort of instill it in them every single day. But my two will happily chase litter around the beach and go around to the beach and instead of digging in the sand, they'll go around with a bag and pick up everyone else's litter. And I feel like they shouldn't have to do that but I love that they're willing to do that. They've seen the problem and they're willing at such a young age to to sort of do it.
2: Yeah, but the thing is that and they'll do that for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And that's yeah. it. So you you only need to you only ever need to teach someone well once. Yeah. And it will it will go from there. But, I mean it's a, it's a solvable it is a solvable problem and certainly you know when we're talking about ocean conservation going for something like sharks which is you know have very popular and 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 very heavily subscribed both in uh you know the sort of scientific media and uh, you know discovery bbc they all you know sharks are always a seller so that's not a bad thing you know that fame is is a good way to you know to get people hooked early doors and and they will stay hooked so yeah it's it is doable it is absolutely it's doable but it, yeah it would be nice if the the red tops didn't immediately go oh there's something in the sea you're gonna die tourists
1: yeah. run for your lives
2: yes <laughs> we'll get the it's the same every year we get sharks uh at the start of the summer and then in august we get jellyfish every year yeah. the number of times i have um been you know interviewed about jellyfish in the UK is just ridiculous and uh, yeah
1: well I actually when I moved to Wales I'd never seen a jellyfish before and then all of a sudden it was it was it was all going fine it was all going well we were at the beach every day after school and then all of a sudden oh no what's this and it was, of course, a compass jellyfish that was just, you know, it had been washed up on the beach. And then, as the weeks went on, there was more of them. One time, we went to the beach, and you couldn't get on the beach because there were so many of them washed up on the beach. And oh, I'm nice. like, "Oh no, no, we're going to get stung!" And you know, as you said, instilling that fear on your kids. My kids, luckily, still love them and still want to explore. But yeah, it definitely, it definitely. <laughs> wet worked wet put suits.
2: Me on. <laughs> That's all you need. Set, yeah. Wet suits will keep you. Uh, I mean, we. We're going away from sharks to jellyfish briefly, but um, (laughs) the only real worry for um, sort of coastal jellyfish for us would be the mauve stinger, which, uh, depending on your reaction to it, is realistically no worse than, uh, you know, a bad nettle or a low bee sting uh we do obviously get the occasional you know random ones coming in the portuguese man of, man of war which isn't the jellyfish but that's for another podcast mm-hmm. another time um uh, or indeed things like lion's mane that can wash up the, the general gist is if a jellyfish is as short as it is wide you're safe okay the minute it has long tentacles that's when it'll sting
1: right i'll remember that for this yeah. summer
2: <laughs> so like uh, if it if it looks like it's got cauliflower following it no, it's totally safe. Uh, okay. It's, uh, I mean, it can still sting. All jellyfish have the ability to sting, but the the, the actual cells can't penetrate your skin. Okay. So um, yeah, and like I say, you know, a good old a, a good old wetsuit, wetsuit booties, and little gloves keep you warm as well. Win a
1: win a chicken dinner. Always, and I always wear my, I call them sea socks, um, my little shoes for the sea, because I just yeah. think it's 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 more comfortable, and it sets my mind at ease that I'm not going to stand on anything nasty. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Stay away. <laughs>
1: But so back to were. sharks. Yes. Back to sharks. We're talking about sort of the conservation issues, and you know what you've said about the different shark species that are at risk in our UK waters. Why are what? I'll start that again. What are the issues that sharks are facing, especially in the UK waters? Why are these species going endangered? What? Why are they suffering?
2: Uh, sharks are uh suffering primarily from overfishing
1: mm-hmm.
2: so uh since the 1970s we have seen on average about uh an 80 to 90% population drop in sharks so that is damn near uh an organized uh, extinction certainly things in the in the north atlantic uh things like oceanic white tips have fallen by 90% or more um, you know large charismatic megafauna in general uh, have, have declined worldwide. Um, it's It's overfishing. It's overfishing primarily. It's uh, overfishing for uh, the shark fin market and uh, and that is you know driven very heavily uh, obviously in, in Asia. But there there is a a lot that goes on over here and in America and South America as well. You know, it isn't just an Asian problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the Spanish fishing fleets are more than happy to catch sharks and to sell the fins, as are, you know, English fishing vessels as well. So, you know, no one here is is coating themselves in any particular glory. But, you know, on the whole, your your large sharks, are they're long-lived, they're slow to mature, they're slow to reproduce. So they're not suitable to be fished. Uh, long line fishing practices, either targeted at sharks or uh, at other uh, large oceanic species, they don't do them any favours. Um, and while sharks are, you know, reasonably, um, reasonably, hardy when it comes to things like the actual f- ocean chemistries you know that we we know the pH of the ocean has risen uh, quite dramatically uh the sorry uh, not risen decreased the uh, uh, pH of the ocean has decreased the acidity has risen sorry get that right uh there are you know huge amount of of metals now uh, in in the seas sharks can kind of hack that yes. for the moment uh, it is just that fishing pressure that is what is absolutely kippering them. And if we if we just take our foot off, off the brakes, sorry, take our foot off the accelerator, get our foot on the brake, we could make a you know a massive difference in as little as five years. You know, yeah. and, and that's that's the thing that I think um fishery scientists have been so so upset about is the fact that all they have been preaching all they've been preaching for years and years and years is cut back and go on the quota, cut back and go on the quota. And, and governments, uh, politicians, policymakers have always gone, nah, we'll just take a bit more. We'll just take a bit more. We'll just take a bit more. And catches have dropped worldwide, not just of sharks, but of commercially viable fish species. And, um, you know, at, at one point there was, you know, going to be a glimmer of hope that certainly for us here in the UK Brexit might give us more control over our, our fishing and get rid of these larger fishing fleets, get rid of these ridiculous bycatch issues. Uh, that doesn't seem to have materialized at all. So another broken promise there. Uh, but again, podcast for another time. Mm-hmm. Um, but all we really need to do in, in, to that extent is just listen to the scientists you know the human the human race in general the way that we are living we are a we are a smoker that for the past 50 years has been smashing 40 a day
1: mm-hmm.
2: and has been told for the past 30 years that it needs to cut back because it's going to get lung cancer and now the human race has got lung cancer and seems to be shocked that the doctors are saying well then you need to stop smoking mm-hmm. and and it's quite absurd but um there are slow rumblings there are changes being made the shark trust a UK charity a UK charity rather they've done some fantastic work uh when it comes to shark quotas and shark fishing because uh you know they and myself I'm a a, you know big believer in, in reaching compromise you won't You don't win any battles by, uh, coming back to what we were saying earlier, just telling someone, no, you're stupid, you're wrong. That doesn't win. You don't win anything there. You're much, much better to say, okay, well, you know, how about a little column A, a little column B? And uh, there there have been efforts. There have been um, bits of paper passed through Parliament, which should give sharks and indeed commercially fished species a bit more protection but it needs to be enforced uh, it's it's a tricky it's a tricky time we're certainly here we're certainly aware there are the right people fighting the right uh you know the right battles uh, but it you know it's crazy to think if we just said you know what let's just have a moratorium on fishing for five years okay, and we'll pay all those those fishermen their five years of wages would probably be the same as what amazon would pay in tax for a single year it'd be Mm -hmm. nothing be absolutely nothing we just pay the you know pay all those fishermen for one for five years there's your wages for five years and come back in five years and we'll have these quotas in this way and we'll do it hard and and the seas would uh, would have bounced back something chronic and we have proof of that we have proof of that when we have marine protected areas Uh, we Mm -hmm. have proof of that for things like Lundy island you know the minute that you just stop and give it a chance to recover it comes back just in leaps and bounds. And then you can then manage it, you know, manage it better. Um, so that's certainly something that can happen around our, our shores. Uh, it's quite a big fight. Further afield, because, of course, a lot of these shark species, while we do have our coastal species, a lot of them are really quite cosmopolitan. Uh, I mean, blue sharks will swim all the way from here to the azures, back over to the caribbean and back to us so you know they really are getting their air miles in
1: package
2: Um, yeah yeah uh the things that have been happening further afield are you know looking to make sharks worth more alive than dead so a lot of poacher turn gamekeeper stuff you know getting people that were going shark fishing and getting them now doing shark tourism which is a really good idea. And uh, I'm sure there, there's always somebody out there that says, oh, no, shark tourism is bad because it's... Blah, blah, blah. No, anything done poorly is is not worth having. You know, yeah. if you go to a hospital and have your your tonsils out, if it's done badly, it's not worth having. It doesn't yeah. mean that having your tonsils out is a bad thing. So worldwide, shark tourism can be really, really uh, positive. Um, but in general, just any kind of... Coming back to what I said before, the seas are so intrinsically linked and webs together. Any kind of ocean restoration will provide a bit of a a firebreak for sharks, be it the restoration of seagrass meadows, which can provide nursery grounds and breeding areas for coastal species. You know, retaining coral reefs and encouraging coral reefs to, to reseed you know, these are areas where sharks regularly hunt or will come to socialise. Um, you know, you name it, there is anything that is done in the oceans for good will benefit sharks. So even collecting litter, that will benefit sharks. So every little helps, as big supermarkets will tell you. <laughs>
1: um, absolutely, no, I completely, yeah, it's, it's just, again, it's those little actions, isn't it, that will make a big change, but... Obviously, we know that everything has its place in the ecosystem. So just for a bit of a, a depressing turn, what would what would the oceans look like if sharks disappeared?
2: Um, well, they would crash mm-hmm. and um, the world would go with it. Yeah. Is, is, is the very short answer. I mean, sharks have been swimming around the seas for 450 million years. So they were here before trees. They were here before flowering plants. Uh, They saw the dinosaurs come and go. Uh, Every study that's ever been done when looking at the ecological effects of sharks within or without on an ecosystem has shown that without them, the ecosystem invariably crashes. And uh, we rely on the seas for uh, the oxygen that we breathe. You know, you could burn every single tree on the planet if you wanted. And at best, you may affect two out of every eight breaths where 80% of our oxygen is coming from, from, uh, from the ocean.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: yeah, I mean, this is an ocean planet. Sharks are the top of that when it comes to caretaking, when it comes to management, when it comes to just making sure that everything is ticking over like it should, yeah. you remove that cog. Um, and you know, we're, we're, we're going to go too. but, um, I think, you know, we are certainly, I feel now with humans, we are reaching a point where actually we ourselves are more likely to go before um, some of these animals now. I mean, we might cause some catastrophic environmental disasters, but they will affect us most heavily. And we will be the, the species that kind of can't, you know, do and can't recover. Mother Nature will quite happily, you know, sneeze us out and, and, and go again. And sharks will uh, will. Persist because they, you know, they have this huge ecosystem that they can live in. They will hide in the right spots, and they will recolonize. So, that, I mean, that is great. Uh, I mean, we will 100% go before before sharks will, uh, but it doesn't need to be like that. You know, it doesn't need to be like that. Um, the The tide is turning again. that's the terrible pun. You know, people are aware of uh, issues in the ocean. There will have to be some kind of watershed moment, another terrible pun, when a line in the sand, another terrible pun, is drawn and uh, and, and things really do change. If not, um, you know, it only means the end of us. And realistically, that's not that bad. I mean, you think about if we lose a species, uh, but the planet continues... I mean don't get me wrong I'm not I'm not any time looking to check out anytime soon. I've got a fabulous bid I want to see how far I can get it. <laughs> um but you know we we have to to help the planet to help the place we live. We have to drop this ridiculous and entirely unfounded idea that we are in some way special. Yeah. You know Bill Hicks said it better than us. We are a virus with shoes. We are in the only animal in control of its own ecosystem and the only animal in control of its own ecosystem that is killing its own ecosystem. So you get what you give. Um, we can make a change. We need that big watershed moment. It's been happening little bits and bobs. People are more aware. People do care. You know, little things have happened that people haven't realized, you know, the plastic bags in supermarkets as, you know, that's ticked through. People may see it as, "Oh, what's the point?" Like you say, you know, these little things, but it is the smallest stones to start an avalanche. All the kids that I've ever spoken to, when I've been doing my science communication and my outreach stuff, they they love it, and they're mm. going to turn into adults who love it. So I'm I'm optimistic. I really am. I am optimistic. I think that we will do all right. And if we don't, it's only us that's gonna gonna go.
1: Yeah.
2: And and so you know that's kind of in a way you know thinking about the bigger picture that's kind of (laughs) win-win either we stay and we sort our act out or we end up checking out and mother nature goes "Whoa, not doing that again and smack she's on with something else uh and in the meantime we've got you know a a tool released an album you know only a few years ago they're touring this year (laughs) Uh, metallica might have something out again soon Slipknot look like they might already be back in the studio. I mean, it's a good time. There's lots of metal out there. It's What's a winner, winner, chicken dinner.
1: What's that uh, Jurassic Park quote? Life finds a way.
2: Yes, she does, because she's <laughs> been doing it a lot longer than we have. But um, yeah, I mean, I say I am optimistic because the, the, the worst generations have gone. They've gone. The, oh. you know, the cook it, kill it, clean it new it, they they're moving through and now are people going hang on hang on a minute yeah. and that's us you know that's us and that's the kids that we're affecting and and so yeah it'll be it'll be reet it'll be re- it'll be reet come it'll be right come bedtime
1: as they say in the shire oh, um, indeed so to finish let's talk a, t- a tiny bit just really quickly about little things that we can do and the kids can do in the UK. I mean, I recently found out about the um, Shark Trust uh, egg case recording programme that they do. Egg, do great egg an, case hunt. Yes, you can do yep. it through a little app and it's really easy. So we're forever going to the little local beaches along the Conway Coast and in Anglesey and finding these mermaid purses. And I never we sort of they're interesting to see and take pictures of but it was really amazing to find out that we could actually contribute to something practical. Um, can you briefly explain better than I will <laughs> about what that is and how people can get involved with that?
2: Well, it's a lovely bit of citizen science and uh, you know, it's, it's just, it is just perfect. Sit up and beg something you can do by yourself with your kids, with your class, with your school, whatever. It's beautiful stuff. Uh, and, and it has, you know, a, a serious effect because all this data coming in about these egg cases and where they are found allows the shark trust to then uh, direct policy into creating marine protected areas in areas which are shark nurseries that's amazing and that's just done by you going to the beach having a good time and and like you say finding an egg case which you're going to find anyway and using an app it's it's bish-bash-bosh it's you know it's really sit up and beg stuff so yeah. that's that's great and uh, that citizen science stuff well, i'm not too sure it's the greatest name in the world citizen science but you know it sounds like a really boring superhero personally but science.
1: yeah
2: um but, you know, that replicated across many things. Uh, the, you know, Project Seagrass uh, do some great stuff as well, where they just ask you to be a seagrass spotter. Because if they know where the seagrass is, they can, you know, they can make a difference. Yeah. Um, you know, you're we, we've spoken already about marine conservation, the Great British Beach Cleans that they do. All these little things add up. Bottom line, they just add up. And from anyone listening to this right now, I would ask them to just make you know, two, three changes Hell, make one change Mm. and, and keep it small, keep it absolutely simple, easy peasy. Won't ever, you know, won't ever uh, buy a takeaway coffee cup again, something like that. It's small, but it's easy. You know, you say, right, I'm gonna, um, you know, we're we're only going to eat meat twice a week, bang, you know, simple, easy, nice, good stuff. Uh, And if you can't do that, then support a charity, you know 5 5 pound a month which is nothing how much does a, a coffee from from you know starbucks or costa cost these days you know 5 pound a month absolutely nothing support a charity and let them do it for you i mean it's it's brilliant stuff but i mean certainly any parents out there that are that are be listening check out all these charities they all have big kids outreach and it's super fun and it's a great way for uh, you know, I, I don't have any uh, small humans with me. I, I've only just got animals and, and guitars, but, you know, they're like children in my case. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, even I'm aware of the fact that looking after kids is a full-time job. So if you can get them to the beach and get them doing a job, and it's a job that's helping the beach and helping the oceans and helping the seas and the whales and the dolphins and the sharks, well, that is an all out 10 out of 10. Simple yeah. as that.
1: Absolutely. I think for me as well, talking, I know through, obviously I take the kids beachcombing. I go beachcombing on my own. I'm that, I'm that person walking along barefoot along the beach in the rock pools, you know, seeing what I can find, Googling, you know, just the basic description of things just so I can work out what the, what that is. But I think, even like I remember the other week I posted a picture of, a, of an egg case and someone asked me, Oh, what is that? I've seen loads of them on the beach, but what is that? And through that, we had a bit of a discussion about what they are. And then she downloaded the app and now she was like, Oh, wow, that's amazing. Every time I go to the beach now, you know, we always see nice. them and it's just through talking to people and just spreading that awareness and engaging with people and sharing your excitement. And that's exactly what I want to do is I want to share excitement about all these amazing things that we've got around us. Yeah. I think by doing that and by just talking and the power of word, we can make such a huge difference.
2: Absolutely. Nail on the head, Charlie, nail on the head. Job done. Job done. <laughs> Aye, proper job. No, job done. Let's crack on.
1: Right. Well, I think we'll leave it there because I-, I could go on again for another hour. Um, but as you said, we've both got to get back to work. Yes, so. <laughs> absolutely so i just want to say a huge thank you for um joining me today and for having this conversation and yeah no problem thanks for having me on hopefully i can get you back for clownfish and jellyfish
2: yeah we can talk about whatever you like if it's fishy i'm your man
1: brilliant well thank you so much for joining me
0: once again that was a truly eye-opening conversation I said during that episode that I am nervous around large bodies of water and sort of what lies beneath but i think it's so important to learn about the environment around you and understand the important role that every single species on our planet plays in the balance of our ecosystem i hope i can persuade tom to come back and delve further into the world of jellyfish that other fear of mine and i'm excited to unravel another marine mystery together and learn about how we can help and make a positive difference join me next time for more important conversation about the natural world with another incredible guest The explorer Jacques Cousteau said, The sea, once it casts its spell, holds one in its net of wonder forever. I'm Charlie, and this has been Mountain Conversations.